listener. KickPod acknowledges the traditional owners and custodians of the land in which we're recording this podcast, the Yulukut Wulung clan of the Boomerang, who are a part of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to our elders, past and present, and extend our respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. Welcome to the KickPod, your DNM on the stuff that matters, but also the stuff that doesn't. One, two, three, four. We did just want to have a trigger warning here for anyone that may be triggered by the topic of restrictive eating. If you or anyone you know wants to reach out for help, you can call the Butterfly National Helpline on 1-800-ED-HOPE. So may recommend skipping it if this episode may be triggering in any way. Hi, Lorzy. Hello. So today's episode, we are about to be joined mm. by the wonderful Steph Elswood. Mm. She's an angel. Absolutely. In angel. real life. Yeah. And what she shared with us, so Steph has been through a really big journey with herself, mm. with her relationship, with her body, with food and exercise. She was a dancer when she grew up and when she was around 14, she developed an eating disorder and she shares really, really openly through the podcast. We're so grateful for how generous she was with what she shared around working through that and how she was able to rebuild that relationship. She's also a people pleaser. Hello. I was like, please give me all your tips. What do we do? What do we do? In the chat, there was so much I felt like I kept wanting to look at you because I was like, I feel like I'm talking to Laura. (laughs) Like there is so much. People be like, I'm not going to listen anymore. No, no, listen, she's just way cooler than me. Uh, So we spoke about people pleasing and, Mm. and ways to be able to let go of some of that because it is really, for any of the people pleasers listening, it is really, really tough sometimes. So that was fantastic. And then as well, Seth has been on a journey with alcohol mm. and has quit alcohol. And four years ago, four years ago, mm. she has her own incredible non-alcoholic company as well, which Amazing. we chat through. She chats through her journey of how she kind of why she quit alcohol mm. and then yeah, how she's feeling now. And I just I'm so excited. I need to get it. Stop talking so yeah. you can listen to Steph. Yeah, I think you I think you've made a new friend. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Steph, welcome to the Kick Pod. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm so excited. We're so excited. And for those who might be listening in who might not be familiar with your story, we would love to take it back to growing up. Steph, you were a dancer. Talk to us about that. I know personally one of my um, closest mates grew up as a dancer and did it professionally as well. And there was a lot of kind of similarities in the pressure that is on dancers, particularly around body and everything, um, as what I've experienced and what Laura's experienced within the modelling industry. So did you go through any of that? Yeah, so I actually changed schools when I was 14 mm. and I went from a very academic all-girls school to a vocational school where there was only about 20 of us in the year. Um, and I would say around that time is when I first became aware of my body image. So mm. we would do academics in the morning and then vocational training in the afternoon. So we'd be in leotard and tights all afternoon and I'd say like 14, 15, 16, they're when you start developing as a woman, right? Mm. Um, and I was a very petite, I was known as like little Steph because I just didn't grow in height for so long. Um, and I think because in the environment that we were in, it was breeding competition. We were all fighting for parts in the end of summer show. We were all competing for solos and you're constantly in rooms and environments with mirrors where you can't escape your appearance. Mm. 
Um, and being a dancer, you are on show, you are performing, you are there to be admired and looked at. And I think I really struggled because I wasn't womanly. I didn't have boobs. I didn't have a bum. I wasn't voluptuous or curvy or anything like that. I was very, I was like a bean sprout. I was just (laughs) a very young looking 14 year old. And it was around that time where, did you have Tumblr in Mm -hmm. Australia? Mm -hmm. It was very pro eating disorders. Mm -hmm. Skins was on TV at the time with really petite women. And I just kind of caught myself up in disordered eating. And from the age of about 14 to 16, the pressure of my GCSEs and exams were really, really high. So my parents said that I could only go to vocational school if my academics stayed high. So not only did I have the pressure of competing for parts, roles and front centre in the shows, I also had to make sure that I was getting A's in my exams because that was an agreement I made with my parents. So whilst everyone was winning awards at the end of the year for acting, dancing and singing, I was winning the academic awards, which now I'm really grateful for. But at the time, I felt like an absolute loser. So the pressure that I put on myself from the age of 14 was really great. And I think I've always wanted to be someone that is basically, I'm I'm a serial people pleaser, right? Mm. So I wanted to please my family. I wanted to please my teachers. I wanted to please myself. And I wanted to be good at everything I did. So I actually became really good at having an eating disorder. I put all of my energy into it. I knew I wasn't going to be the sexiest girl in my year, not one that maybe boys would look at or whatever. So I thought I'd be the thinnest. And I struggled a lot um, from the age of 14 to 16 with bulimia and anorexia. Then after my GCSEs, um, I was just a shell of myself, very miserable. And I think because of what I went through, I had quite a negative connotation of that school. So I actually moved schools at 16 to a different performing arts college. And the fresh start was amazing. I I felt like I was almost like born again. I'd, I'd trained my whole life to be at this incredible school. Mm. Um, but sadly, in my second year, I relapsed. And again, the pressure was too great. Um, I was, suddenly went from being in a school of 20 people where I was, I felt quite talented or whatever, mm. to being in a year with 100 students that were like the best in the country. Mm. So again, that pressure led to more control in other areas of my life, which kind of lied on food, exercise, the lack of food and things like that. So it was a very difficult time. And I think anyone in that industry will know the pressures that come with it. But like I said to you guys before the podcast started, like it is very much part of my story because I was called into the headmistress's office in my second year and all of my teachers, I was passing out in classes, my hair was falling out. I think my skin just looked grey. I just, I wasn't well, I I wasn't really there. But I was so unaware of it because to me... When people were saying, oh, you look poorly, that was me being like, oh, my God, I've lost weight. Like, mm. I'm I'm succeeding in what I set out to do. Um, so I was called into my headmistress's office and she said, if you don't tell your parents about what you're doing and, and how it's affecting you by the end of half term, we're going to have to ask you to leave. And that really played on my people-pleasing mentality because my parents had sacrificed so much for me to be at this college. I thought, oh, God, this isn't about me anymore. This is me letting my parents down. So... I went home, I told my mum that evening and she took me straight to my GP and I have no idea what I said in that doctor's practice but they rushed me through the system. Uh, They must have been concerned about either my weight or Mm. my lack of menstrual cycle or whatever it was and I was rushed through to a hospital that specialised in eating disorders and that basically changed my life going through that therapy and, and led to so many opportunities in in both recovery and then that have led to kind of more business ventures 
since then. Mm. Um, so when I was in therapy, I was asked to keep a food diary to make sure that I was eating enough to sustain my energy levels for dancing six to eight hours a day. And I found that really triggering yeah. to write down absolutely everything I was eating. And I found it much more enjoyable to create delicious recipes, take photos of them and show them to my therapist as a way of joyful eating again, eating a rainbow of different fruits, vegetables, whatever. And I set up an Instagram page that was completely private. I never thought anyone would follow it. Uh, it was called Healthy Chef Steph. <laughs> um, and I just started posting pictures of my food and it started to get a bit of a following. And I remember I hit 99 followers and I was like, oh, I'm famous. <laughs> and I ran into my college canteen and I was like, someone follow me. I want 100 followers. And my friend Ryan at the time turned to me and was like, Steph, this is amazing. Like, what if you documented your recovery journey? Because mm. I think everyone at that time knew I was struggling mentally and, and physically. He was like, what if you documented your journey and you spoke out about this whole recovery process? Like, it could inspire someone. And I was like, oh no, like, I'll just post my avocado toast, it's fine, like, no one cares. I went home and told my mum that I was going to post a photo of myself, introduce myself to the page, and I think my profile picture at the time was a quote saying, strong, not skinny, or something. And my mum was like, no, 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 the internet is wild, you can't post yourself. Mm. And I think, like, the influencer side of things had really kicked off in America and Australia, but it hadn't yet come to the UK. So I went home and I was like, no, do you know what? I'm going to introduce myself and I'm just going to speak openly. And even if no one sees it, I don't even care. Like, I think this is going to be really positive for my journey. Anyway, over the years, built a following and 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 managed to speak about my entire recovery process and had some incredible opportunities and beautiful conversations mm -hmm. from it. Mm -hmm. And it's just, yeah, transformed everything. I've gone from being this lost, aspiring performer doing some of my dream jobs within the industry, performing. Um, and now I've got a full-time social media business that has led to kind of other ventures with a huge passion for helping other women who maybe mm. struggle with their confidence. Oh, it's just incredible. It really is. And I, I think what I would love to ask is in that moment, because I, I think for me, the the one part that I couldn't relate to is that when your uh, headmistress was the one that kind of pointed it out to you. At that point, were you like in complete denial that you had an issue or did you kind of know? And like, how was that process of kind of understanding what you were doing wasn't exactly healthy and working through that? Because I think it was something I personally identified through understanding others and what they'd been going through mm -hmm. in myself. And I couldn't imagine how it might have felt someone else pointing it out. Yeah, I think... I was aware of it, but it was more of like a dirty little secret right. that I was grateful for. Like mm. it was my, I'm, I'm fascinated by different styles of therapies. And there's one called human givens that speak about your nine human emotional needs mm. that everyone needs kind of in balance to feel an equilibrium state. Mm. And one of them is control. So for me, being able to go and make myself sick or restrict my food was my form of control. Mm. So as much as I knew it was wrong and I knew it wasn't healthy, to me, it was like a dirty little secret that made me feel safe. So it wasn't until, I mean, the college offered me no support in terms of we will help you. It was like, you either fix yourself or you're kicked yeah. out. So that was very confronting. And I think I've always been a little bit embarrassed about being a people pleaser. But because I was one, I didn't want to let the college down. I didn't want to let my parents down. And that was a massive rocket up my ass to basically get better. It was extremely confronting and it was quite embarrassing. It's like mm -hmm. if you're caught doing something wrong as a kid, you mm -hmm. know you shouldn't be doing it, but then, Shamed. yeah, you feel that shame. And I think that's what it was. But yeah, I think it was very confronting having those conversations. 
but had it not have happened, yeah. who knows where I would be now? Oh, it's it's. I'm so I'm so sorry that that you went through that. I relate to so much around the people pleasing. Like for me, I did quite well in school, but it, I truly think it was because of my people pleasing tendencies. Yeah. Because I was like, I wanted to make my teachers happy, so I studied to do that. And then same for me with my disordered eating, the journey that I went through. I'm very similar. I mean, quite disciplined, I feel like, from from chatting mm-hmm. to you and like type A personality. So for me, it was like, I can control this. I can yeah. be disciplined. How between the age of kind of 14 and 16, when you kind of started and then when you eventually spoke to or the headmistress spoke to you, had you dealt with it by yourself the whole time? And how did you find that? Because I just, I imagine in, like, I didn't grow up dancing, but but I know there's so much pressure mm. on dancers' bodies. Mm. And there's probably as well a lot of validation around being small. Mm-hmm. How did you deal with that? Because I'm assuming you were getting validation for the way that you were looking, mm. but you were also like, you know, losing your hair and, and everything. Yeah. So when I was at the first school, um, People were kind of aware of it. And I remember reaching out to a few of my friends at the time. I was a bit nervous back then. And I said to them, like, I've been making myself sick. But I went to two people privately and they had a conversation and basically came to the conclusion that I was attention seeking, even though I was kind of speaking out in confidence. So in that moment, I kind of alienated myself from my friendship groups because I was so nervous that everyone thought I was attention seeking or whatever. So in those moments, the stress of my GCSEs kind of took over. I wasn't really speaking to a lot of the people in my year because I was so nervous of coming across as attention seeking. I went from like going into school early to hang out with everyone before school to kind of coming just before the bell kind of dinged for the day. Um, And I think that's probably why I never really told anyone about it the second time. So the summer after we'd finished exams, I was at home and I kind of, I think in a different way, it made me just think, oh, I've got a fresh start at a new college. Like, let, let this be a fresh start. And I kind of made a promise to myself, okay, I won't be sick during this time. And that's probably why I relapsed because I didn't heal the mm. things starting the eating disorder in the first place. But during that time, yeah, I did kind of self-heal or whatever. But then mm. unfortunately it came back with a vengeance the moment a stressful situation arose again. But it, it was a really tricky time. But I think when you're that young, mm. you don't have... You don't have the awareness that you maybe have when you're a little bit older, a little bit wiser. You don't realise that you're not just hurting yourself, you're hurting those around you and all of those things. So I just wasn't conscious. I was just so wrapped up in my own mind and I was being praised for my smaller body and I was feeling better for it. Mm. And it was it was toxic. Mm. Oh, the, the thing that's the, the hardest to hear there as well is, is around you being told that you're an attention seeker. Oh, it's it's just so scary that... As young people, and I mean, even now, like I know times that I've opened up about things and if someone's responded in that way, it's crazy how some things sit with Mm. you Mm. and they then block you from being able to speak openly about things because you assume that every single person is going to judge you in the the same way and judge us in the same way. How did you work through that? Was it the fact that the headmistress came to you so then it was like, okay, you're going to deal with it, but mentally have you has it taken you a long time to let that go because it was such a pivotal moment in your journey and to know that it's okay to speak up and it's not going to be attention seeking um I think it's probably something I'm probably still working through Mm. I think the career that we're in now you guys might relate. obviously we're in social media where we speak about our lives right 
I've been called attention-seeking, narcissist, whatever. And I think my core ethos is I've always tried to use social media in a way to share a positive message that people have takeaways. So rather than being like, look at me, this is what I'm doing. It's like, this is what I'm doing as a result of blah, blah, blah. This is an event I'm hosting because I want to help with blah, blah, blah. And it's it's definitely something you hold on to things that you're told when you're 14. Mm. Do you know what I mean? You, mm. you you carry, you have these suitcases in life that you pack full of other people's luggage that you then carry for the rest of your life until you get a chance to unpack it. So I have been through a lot of therapy to try and iron out those issues, but I'm definitely still a recovering people pleaser. And I fear the fact that someone might call me attention seeking. And I think I have become a more introverted person as a result of it, unless I'm with the right people. Yeah, And I think learning who I want in my circle and who I I want to be around definitely then brings out a side of me where I'm like I can literally be my authentic self without fear of judgment or comments or anything like that so I I do think every step every comment that you get is part of your journey and Mm. it makes you who you are as you mature and as you evolve and as your brain develops Um, but I do think I'm still trying to unpack that comment that was made to me when I was in my teens. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's so important when you can find those people and surround yourself with those that you can just kind of let go and be yourself. Speaking of online, though, I suppose nowadays and as your following did start to grow in the early days as well, instead of, you know, being in a studio with mirrors from every angle, it's like you had eyes from people all over the world yeah. uh, who you didn't know. How have you gone with the judgment from people online? Have you... Because you've projected this this beautiful positive, you know, which you are as you who you are, self online, has it stayed a pretty positive space, or have you outside of those comments you were talking about, have you ever been attacked for the way you look, and has that ever taken you back to any of the thoughts you used to have? Um, I think when I started and it was mostly about recovery, people were really friendly, and, yeah. and it's always been like a steady growth on social media. I've never had like a massive spike where it's skyrocketed or anything like that. It's always been very gradual. Um, And on the whole, people have been so lovely. There have been occasional comments or kind of what I'd call a fake account where it's got no profile picture on whatever saying hateful things. And on the whole, I feel like because I've done a lot of work on myself, I can brush it off and be like, it's fine. Like, I don't need to engage. I don't need to respond. The only time I find it difficult is if it's a core belief I think about myself and someone else has acknowledged it. I think, oh God, well, I think this about myself and now the world can see it. And it almost validates my insecurity. And I really struggle with that. And then during lockdown, I feel like hate just brewed. Mm. And I think there was a lot of uncertainty in the world and there was just a lot of negativity in the world. And that came through with a lot of comments and DMs. Um, So that was a really difficult time. And I went through a phase of reading all of the hate and thinking, oh, this is, this is feedback. Like anything they say. You're literally me. We are this. I, 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 because it's back to that people pleasing. pleasing. And also like, I'm assuming you put extremely high expectations on yourself. Yeah. Mm. But, and I'm, I can't, I don't say as I do. So like, I can't sit here and be like, yeah, you know, I've got it now. But I generally will take feedback, like d- yeah. troll comments and be like, I need to take that on board because that's how I'm going to improve. It's like feeds yeah. it. It's a hundred percent true. And I think I've, I've started to learn that actually, even if I did everything they wanted me to, they'd still hate me. Mm. So it's not necessarily about how I'm showing up and and I realized that when I was trying to change myself with this feedback I was then alienating myself from the people that respected me and and wanted to cheer me on anyway so as much as I read it and I think okay can there be truth in this sometimes people say something I'll be like yeah fair enough I was a dick then but a lot of the time (laughs) I'm, I'm trying to 
obviously I want to better myself and better the corner of the internet that I have and the message that I have, but also learning who you take feedback from and yeah. who, who, do you know what I mean? Like you if, if I, you, you can't please everyone. No. So yeah, I, I do get negative comments. I'm, I'm very grateful that it's few and far between. And I think when, wherever I am in my cycle depends on <laughs> yeah, how well I take it. Yeah. Um, but I feel confident that I've got people around me that I can say, I got this message today mm. and we'll shout like, fuck that. Oh, can I swear? Yeah, yes. Okay, yeah. Like, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> literally the same person. <laughs> um, but I'll be like, oh yeah. And we'll just kind of shout, fuck them really loud and yeah. move on with our day. So do you find, I, I wonder if for me, I, I and it's a horrible thing that I'm trying to work through myself, but I lean into very, I'm going to say constructive, it's not control comments aren't constructive feedback, but I lean into that because it pushes me to do better because I feel so personally far from my expectations that I put on myself. Mm -hmm. And so I'm so scared of not leaning into that doubt because that doubt pushes me to like, achieve what I want to achieve yeah even though I'm nowhere near where I feel like I should be with the expectations I put on myself which is like horror for everyone listening like it's just horrible mental I, I I'm working through it because it's not healthy do you find that at all yeah and I definitely think even though we were in different industries modeling and dancing I feel like you still get used to rejection right mm. and constantly you'll go for castings or auditions and you'll get right the way through and then you'll get a no but never told why so it's or you'll get told feedback and then you have to embody that for your next casting or whatever and I do think that I've carried that sense of rejection into maybe my social media presence as well and you do take it on board because you think oh god if a stranger who sees my two percent of what I share online says that I'm obviously representing myself in the wrong way and high expectations big dreams and goals is amazing but if it's at the detriment to your sense of self I think that's when it becomes an issue Mm. and I think I'm just starting to realize that one analogy that I was told by actually a friend's mum I think mothers are just so wise and I love being surrounded by so many caring beautiful mothers I can't explain how fab they are but one of them said to me like unfortunately when people are holding on to shit they don't want to be holding on to they will try and throw it at you so if you stand in the firing line you're then gonna have their shit on you Mm. whereas if you just step back the shit will still be on their hands but it'll be on the floor in front of you and it's not your responsibility to be in the firing line and so I think just energetically I try and step back a little bit and think this isn't my baggage I don't need to take on your worries and your expectations of me because I have my own expectations of myself and I can't let this weight of pressure weigh me down throughout my entire life because I will never grow, I will never blossom. Um, And that's definitely something I'm probably still working through. That's such good advice, the shit advice. That is fantastic. (laughs) Around your people-pleasing, so you are extremely empathetic like I well just from even spending this time like your heart feel is it. Like <laughs> on your sleeve you. how do you work through the energy that that sucks from your body because when you're giving all the time sometimes you then like I go through like these ups and downs with my my emotions and my feelings and myself because sometimes when you you know you give your whole soul it's like oh, I've actually got nothing left today yeah and especially when you kind of put that together with being really having high expectations on yourself. How, how do you work through that? That's such a difficult question. Do you know what? I've been surrounded by 
empaths my whole life. Like my mum is the most empathetic woman. We, I have so many vivid memories of us being in public and her running over to someone and just saying, oh my God, you look fantastic. And I remember being so embarrassed by that. Or we'd be sat on the train home from an evening and someone would tell them, we have this running joke that everyone tells my mum their life story. And I think it's beautiful because she obviously has this energy mm. that makes people feel safe to open up, right? But I have definitely inherited that in the sense that if I see someone crying, I'll cry. If I see something beautiful, I'll cry. My default was basically I cry at everything, right? And I think from being vulnerable online, it does give people the safety to reach out and share their vulnerabilities too, which is beautiful. But I do have to remember that I can't take on everyone's problems, right? So even through my school days, if anyone in my year was having an issue, my parents would be like, oh, they can come and stay with us. We'll do this thing called table time, which is when me, my mum and my dad would sit around a table. Sometimes I wasn't invited, but like my friends would sit there and my parents would just listen to them and just give them oh, kind wow. of the opportunity to speak. And, and everyone would be like, I need to come over for table time. And I remember coming home from school once and one of my friends was going through, their parents were going through a divorce and they were just sat at my kitchen table with my mum. And I was like, wait, what? Like, I didn't know you were coming over. And she was like, oh yeah, I came over to speak to your mum. And I think that in my mind is like, I need to take on everyone's problems. I need to heal. Every- I need to heal the world. Like that is my role. It's not possible. And as much as I want to give my love and my heart, I can't completely empty myself because then I'll have nothing left mm-hmm. for me or anyone else. So I actually did a mental health first aid course back in 2019, um, which was brilliant because it taught you the skills of how to recognize mental health issues in others, the right things to say in terms of making them feel seen and validated, but also a way of being able to, I don't mean like pass them on to someone else, but guide them in the right direction where they don't become reliant on you. Mm. Because if they then pass their healing on to you, they will always be reliant on you for their own healing when actually you just need to give them the tools to be able to heal themselves. And I think I have met some incredible people and 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 beautiful stories through social media. And I have really tried to give them all I can without giving them all of me. And it's hard because I do want to sit there and listen and read all of their messages, but I do have to protect myself. And I think I've learned boundaries. And I think when I first started speaking online, I thought being vulnerable was sitting to a camera, crying and and living out my truth live for people to watch. When actually that's not helpful. It just kind of encourages other people to almost trauma dump to me and I'm supposed to then catch it and and help them through it when actually if I sit and cry to my therapist process it Mm. have the takeaways and the tools and then pass that on to my audience that's probably far safer for me in terms of protecting myself and also giving them better advice or sharing better resources so I think I've definitely been more boundaried in how I show up online and then also being more boundaried in terms of how I respond and engage like I want to be able to say I know the exact person you should speak to. I know the exact charity you should speak to. And I think that comes from researching as well. So now I feel like I have a list of places that I can recommend people. And I will always read their messages and reply and say, I see you, I hear you, I feel you. Thank you for being honest with me. I will respond in a genuine way and then say, look, if you feel called to, if you're ready to, I recommend reaching out to this Mm. charity who will get you into therapy within 24 hours. And I, I think that's... I still want to be an empath. I never want to lose that mm. because I love connecting with people and and I think you get a deeper connection when you are empathetic and, and highly sensitive. And I think for so long I bullied myself for it, but I'm trying to recognise now that it can be a superpower. But you just have to protect yourself too. Yeah. 
Yeah. If you could look at your 14-year-old self mm. going through what you were going through at that, that time, what would you say to her? Oh, God, will this make me cry? <laughs> Probably will. Um, oh, yeah. That's You're going to make me cry too. <laughs> I think I just I just literally turned to her and I'd say you are so loved like you are surrounded by love and any venture any step you take any route you decide to go down you will always be met with that um and I'd just give her a massive cuddle and say that everything is going to be okay even like through the bad times everything is going to be okay and just kind of she was in such a dark place and just kind of say like there is light everywhere and there is love everywhere and I know that sounds so hippie but if you look for it you will find it whereas if you look for the darkness that's where you live um yeah and I think that's the beauty like there's a um, an amazing man called Mo Gowda I think is his name and he speaks about trauma and anyone that has been through a traumatic experience he asked them the question like if if you had to remove that trauma for your life as well as all of the lessons you learned would you do it and everyone says no because you learn so much more from the things that go wrong than the things that go right so as much as that 14 year old was so lost I am so grateful for the lessons that she went on to learn and for the person I am today so I'd just give her a hug and also probably say thank you <laughs> so oh, beautiful <laughs> Wasn't expecting to cry <laughs> so much. <laughs> thank, thank you so much for, sh- for sharing that. We, we really appreciate it. Now we wanted to chat to you about quitting alcohol. Mm-hmm. So when did you quit? Two years ago? It's been four years now. Wow. Four years. And you also have your own business. A, yes. You have a non-alcoholic company. Yes. I've actually bought some for you guys to try. Oh, oh, you can have amazing. <laughs> oh, my God, amazing. <laughs> That's so exciting. Tell, tell us about th- your journey with that because I think so many of our listeners would – I think about, you know, would they, if they don't have a great relationship with alcohol or maybe that they just want to, it's not serving them. So they just mm-hmm. want to get rid of it. In Australia, especially, I think it's quite similar to the UK. Like we yeah, have very such similar. a big drinking culture. Yeah. And it is really, or can feel like this really big hilt if you want to quit alcohol, that you're going to be really isolated because al- mm. a lot of our social events and things are surrounded by alcohol. Yeah. How, how did you navigate it? What, what was your story with alcohol and, and why you kind of left it behind? Yeah. Well, I think. There's always also, since having the eating disorder, there's been this mm. innate fear of restriction. Yeah. And if removing something from my life will kind of feed that restrictive mm. mentality and maybe I'll fall back into old ways. So when I was graduated from college, I was dancing in the professional industry, but also moving into more of a social media influencer space. There was so, I was meeting so many exciting people. London is a hub of partying, clubbing, mm. nights out, amazing bars. And I was having the best time. And in 2018, um, I'd always say like I would go out and drink. I wouldn't really have a drink with a meal or it was definitely social drinking that was kind of my kryptonite. Never to the point where I was on the floor paralytic, but probably a few too many being silly and wild and whatever. And in 2018, I went through a breakup and I was just like, wow, hot girl summer. I'm going to be carefree. I'm going to go out with all my friends and say yes to everything. So that is what I did. And I was going out like three or four times a week. I was meeting amazing people and I was loving it. But it kind of got to a point where 
I've never had an issue with alcohol in the sense that I've been reliant on it. Mm. It was more so I'd have an amazing night and then the next morning I would wake up with my heart beating out of my chest thinking, I have like little blanks in my memory and thinking, shit, what did I say? Who did I offend? Did I embarrass myself? Did I embarrass my friends? Mm. Did I make too much of a tit of myself? And I think I'd built this reputation of being like, Steph's a nut job on a night out. She will do funny things. And I just loved making people laugh. So I was like, shit, what did I do to make Mm. people laugh last night? And it got to the point where during that year, kind of towards the end of the year, I met my current partner. And I remember waking up at his flat one morning and thinking, this isn't for me. It probably wasn't the worst anxiety I'd ever had, but it was a moment where I was like, I really don't enjoy this next morning feeling. Mm. And I felt like I'd worked so much around my kind of personal health and wellness journey that when I drank alcohol, I made such poor choices that didn't make me feel good in myself. So I was like, alcohol leads me leads to me feeling anxious, me making poor choices and then feeling wobbly for the next three or four days. Mm. And then I drink again and I'm in this vicious cycle. Mm. What's the one thing I could remove that would break that cycle? And it was alcohol. So my boyfriend and I were going to Bali for three weeks And I said to him, I'm not going to drink alcohol on this trip. I'm just going to, whenever we would have a cocktail at a sunset or a cocktail at a meal, I'm going to have a fresh coconut or a juice and I'm just going to see how I feel. And I came back from that trip and felt amazing. Mm. And I was like, I remembered everything. Mm. I had such a beautiful experience with him and and traveling and, and I loved how I felt without the anxiety But obviously it was an alien experience. I'm not going to be on a holiday in Bali for the rest of my life. So I I needed to come back to London and incorporate that into my lifestyle here. And I was so anxious. I was worried I'd be alienated from social situations. I thought I'd lose friends from the reputation I had of being like a party girl. Mm. Um, I was worried about people's thoughts, but I was like, I'm a very all or nothing person anyway. Mm. So I just kind of told everyone, I'm not drinking at the moment. Um, I'm still going to come out and party, but I'm not going to have a drop of alcohol. And at first people were like, oh, come on, have one. Like, don't be weird, don't be boring. Um, And I think I then, I kind of um, took on the persona of being the fun, sober girl. Mm. That would be the last one on the dance floor that would still stay out until 4 a.m. Yeah, not like I had to prove myself. And for the first two years of sobriety, I did do that. I would drive everyone. We called it my fun bus, uh, even though it was just a car. I was like, yeah, get in the fun bus. I'll drive us out. And I was, I would wait until everyone was ready to leave. And I'd wake up exhausted and be like, why? Why am I killing myself to prove that I'm fun? And um, I kind of went through it. And then it got to the point where I was like, do you know what? I can still go out. Between the hours of 12 and 4, no one remembers anyway. Like, no. If I'm there or not, no one will remember. Yeah. So I'm just going to... Again, be boundaried with my time. Go out, still have a good time. But when I want to leave, I want to leave. And that is okay. I don't have to prove myself to anyone. So it got to the point then where it was kind of coming into lockdown, where I was really confident in who I was as a sober person. I was loving how I felt mentally, physically. There's loads of benefits that come from uh, from reducing alcohol, quitting alcohol. And I'm, I'm not going to sit here and preach, but I was so content with where I was. And then I'm not sure if it was the same in Australia, but during lockdown, everyone was doing quizzes over Zoom. Yep. Did you do that too? Oh, yeah. I can't Trivia actually. Nights. I actually have a horror. I, I yeah. just, it was, when I think of that, I'm like, 
I am done. Feel I never so want to do it sad. again. Yeah. And on Zoom, only one person can talk at once. Um, yeah. I just think of catch-ups on Zoom and they were just mm. like, like, how did we do? Obviously we did it. Yeah. But oh, my goodness, that was a, t- yes. Anyway, but yes, I remember. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so during that time, everyone was doing these quizzes, right? Yes. Do them two, like one or two times a week. Mm. And everyone was getting drunk over Zoom. And I was like, I have such bad FOMO. Like I, I don't want to drink because I know it doesn't, it doesn't serve you me anymore. It was like the alcohol was the only thing that got people through yeah. the Zoom because it was just such a tragic situation. It's so yeah, true. Yeah. And and I thought, do you know what? If I can get through this situation without drinking, mm-hmm. I'm yeah. going to be good for the rest of my life. But totally. there was just this desire for an alternative that wasn't a fruit juice or a fizzy drink or I just didn't fancy it. And I tried some of the non-alcoholic spirits on the market. I saw the industry was kind of starting to kick mm. off. But every single flavour was very, it was kind of tailored to an older palette. It was very botanical, very synthetic. Um, and I would read the labels and it would be like glycerine, water and preservatives. And I'm like, I don't want that either. So that, there's not an alternative on the market right now that I would reach for and be like, yeah, this is my drink on a night out or this is my drink in a social situation. I'll just stick to water. And then that's more obvious. So even if you don't want to preach to everyone that you're sober, everyone would be like, why are you drinking water? And people would be more judgy. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Mm-hmm. So Around that time, it was around 2021, um, I saw a massive spike in the energy drink sector of adaptogen and nootropic ingredients Mm. within energy drinks. And these drinks that had plant-based extracts that could give you cognitive benefit or energy or all of these different things. There was obviously a huge rise in CBD oils and the benefits from that. And I was like, that's really interesting. The wellness and the gaming space have capitalized off of these plant-based extracts. Why can't we take those into the alcohol-free space? What if we could create something that was organic, natural ingredients that tasted amazing, that didn't have to be disguised with fruit juices and mocktails? You could have it over ice, you could have it with soda water or with a fruit juice or a lemonade, whatever, but it had cognitive benefit. So kind of spoke it into existence. I turned to my manager at the time for my social media content and I said, Andrew, I want to release a non-alcoholic spirit. And he was like, okay, cool how are you gonna do that I was like don't know yet but this is what I'm gonna do I'm gonna print out a picture I'm gonna laminate it and I'm gonna put it on my vision board and I'm gonna look at it every day until I've got it and he came back to me the next day and the research around people speaking about drinking less and the boom of the non-alc space and the sector he did the research and saw it was growing like 400% year on year Mm. he's like so Steph great idea I I want in, whatever you're doing, count me in, I'm going to invest. And I was like, great, no name, no concept, but we're going to do this. Ran into my kitchen because I was living with my family at the time. I was like, mum, dad, I'm going into business with Andrew and I'm releasing a non-alcoholic spirit. And they were like, of course you are. All right, nice one. Cool. Just thinking it was just one of my crazy ideas. Anyway, my dad came over the next day, like came into my, I say office, it was our living room, came into my office the next day and said, look, I've done some research. It's fascinating how much it's growing. And and my dad's worked in investments and finance for a long time. So he was like, I would like to be involved. So that boosted my confidence. I was like, if my dad trusts me, amazing. Then my brother heard my dad was involved and was like, well, if dad trusts you, go on then. I want in. So we built this little team that did research and we came up with the name, which is Cruise. And that is an, it's a spin off of an old English word, meaning a noisy, lively drinking party. 
And I was like, that's everything I want. Like, I want to go out and have fun, but I want an alternative that tastes great, that makes you feel good. Um, And we went into development of two recipes, uh, one called Drift that makes you feel calm, relaxed, great for winding down, and one called Uplift, which kind of gives you a bit of a buzz, um, an energy spike, all of that kind of stuff. And so that's what we've been doing for the last two years. I'm so passionate about it. I could speak to you all day about (laughs) the concept and all the all the stuff that I've been through to try and black my way into this industry, basically. But yeah, we released in May earlier this year. And so far, it's been going incredibly well. And I'm very excited by its potential. It's amazing. Oh, congratulations. So it's incredible. Good. What's your favorite product that you have? Oh, I love Drift with Lemonade. Mm. It's I, That's just in terms of flavor combination. It's like summer fruits, basil, cucumber. It's got ashwagandha Yum. in it. It's delicious. Ashwagandha. Ashwagandha, that's calming. Yeah. I take that. Yeah. So you could try Drift off. Oh, I'm so that's excited. That's my favourite. But my household, like my my family love Uplift, which is, um, it's got ginger, it's got a chilli extract. So oh. when you drink it, it's like warming down the back of your throat that you'd get with maybe like a rum or something. Mm. And we've been really like calculated in the sense that we don't want to replicate a gin or a vodka because if I wanted that, I'd drink it. So it's a very unique flavour combination that has more of an adult mouthfeel than maybe a juice or a squash, but it is still less than an alcohol. And yeah, I'm, I'm really excited so by it. Do you know what I love about that? Mm. I hate the taste of vodka. Yeah. Yeah. I went through a time in, <laughs> in my eight yeah, when I was 18 and I like, because I was maybe similar journey in terms of like I pushed myself so hard during school and then when I came out I was like, oh my God, like I'm party hard. Yeah. I'm going to make up for all the stuff I didn't do. And I drank so much alcohol and we have this disgusting shot and maybe you have it here but it's called a wet pussy shot like it's actually disgustingly named and it's just a it's a it's like a half shot of vodka with um cranberry juice oh cranberry no it is is it cranberry Cranberry. cordial or raspberry cranberry I reckon it's got raspberry in it. It is so (laughs) sickly sweet. Yeah. And I literally would drink so many of those disgusting shots. And so because of that, I hate vodka. And people like Laura, this is, and and really most spirits, like I truly, it all tastes like methylated spirits to me. People (laughs) like Laura, this one is really high quality. Like try it. And I'll try it. I'm like disgusting. I just, (laughs) I don't, I don't want to drink it. So I am so excited to try a non-gin slash um, vodka because a lot of them, the ones that we have in Australia as well, like they do, like they're like oh gin or what, yeah, vodka or whatever, and I'm like, yeah. well, I didn't like it, so like I don't want, I don't want yeah. that. But I'm so excited to try yours. It's so funny though, isn't it, that we force ourselves to drink these mm. disgusting drinks because by drink three or four, you can't taste anyway. Yeah. Do you mm-hmm. know what I mean? And mm-hmm. it's, I mean, I remember being on a train on the way to Brighton to go and get drunk on the beach and doing a shot of vodka in my eyeball. Like, <laughs> why did we do that? Yeah. What's an in eyeball? Your eyeball? Like. What do you mean? In my eye. No. Yeah. You put, I've never done that. Oh, wait, you, you shot al- alcohol that. through your yeah. eye. Someone so, said that apparently gets into your bloodstream faster. <laughs> and probably reason why I my eyesight is terrible in my left eye. I'm, oh my God. I'm positive about How it. many did you do? Probably about one because I realised it was a terrible idea. Did it oh, go I on your just face? just imagine. Well, that would have just been yeah, like... Yeah, shot in the eye. Did it go much in? I don't know. I, I was drunk. I Tell don't. I don't even know. But it just. I would not recommend. I thought. Yeah. An I would have been a, a UK term for a cup. Same. I thought. <laughs> I thought so. I was not expecting that. No, oh my gosh. I out. Yeah. Just don't do it. Yeah. No, I won't. <laughs> okay. Um, so that is a big learning from this podcast. Do not shot in your eye, and I just can't believe that. <laughs> oh, it's making my eye tingle. Um, have you influenced any of your friends? Because you said obviously your group of friends at the start they were a bit you know, yeah. um, apprehensive. But have you influenced any of your friends to even even just try it for a period? Um, I, th- 
in, sometimes when I go out for dinner with friends, like as girls and stuff, they say that they actively drink less mm. and they quite enjoy the fact that we don't need to have a big night and stuff. Yeah. yeah, and I definitely think it starts some beautiful conversations. Like the only way I can describe my sobriety journey is beautiful because when you speak about it, people ask genuine like questions and, and they have a genuine interest mm. in it. I don't think I've convinced any of my friends to go completely sober, but I do think that maybe they question it and they're a little bit more conscious in their choices and yeah. stuff. Um, my my partner, Lewis, is into his sport and has been his entire career and he definitely drinks way less. He's a triathlete. He's an, well, like an iron athlete. He does like ultra marathons. It's silly. It's silly. I said to him, I was like, he started in lockdown because he was a pro rugby player. Mm. I said to him, if you don't want to spend time with me, like just say, you don't have to run for seven hours and kill yourself. Like just say, you can go sit in a different room. I'm, I'm not offended. He just loves it. My um, husband took up Ironman training in oh lockdown my God. Too, but then he never did one. Oh, it's Sorry, honey, so if you're listening. But he, no, he just like, he did the training and then he didn't. But it is a lot of training. Yeah. yeah. So is I, he, has he cut down on alcohol? Yeah, I don't think, he doesn't need a label. He doesn't need to be like, I'm sober. Yeah. But he definitely drinks less and, and is grateful for it. Mm. Um, but I would never then force him. Like he's got this amazing drunk alter ego that we called that we call Hank, mm. um, <laughs> and it comes out. And he's this silly, goofy person that I see all the time. But he probably reserves for other people. And so I'd always be like, "Oh, am I going to meet Hank tonight?" And <laughs> so I, I wouldn't say that I've kind of made him stop drinking, but maybe because I'm drinking less, he does as a result, which. Works for our relationship, I guess. Mm. Oh, that's fantastic. And I, lo- I love, too, the way you you speak about quitting alcohol because I think sometimes when it's very, like, you have to quit or, like, all these bad things are going to happen, it's like, well, yeah, exactly yeah. right. It's, like, yeah. not a label. It's just whatever works for you and, and your life. And I'm so sad that we have to end this conversation because <laughs> oh. we could literally talk to you for 48 hours. Um, it's been such a joy. And thank you for sharing your story mm. and being so generous in, in how open you were. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And honestly, you girls are like royalty in the UK. So I hope you have the best time over here. <laughs> and if you ever come to Australia, you, you so with your company, yeah. you've got to come to Australia yeah. and we're going to just be drinking it yeah. all the time. <laughs> Let's make it happen. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening, guys. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. If you ever want to get involved with our podcast, maybe we're talking about a segment, you have something relatable you want to chat about, a DNM, questions, um, please send your voice notes or your stories to us at KickPod where you can DM us directly um, and you can also keep up with everything that we're doing on the podcast there as well. You can see the video content that we share and any other questions or updates and we want to get you guys involved. You sure can. And <laughs> if you want to find out more about Kick, you can learn more at kickapp.com. You can download the app on the Google Play or the Apple Store. We have got a free seven-day trial. And you can find us on Instagram at Smith at laurie.henshaw and on TikTok at Kick. We will chat to you soon. Bye.